The biggest difference between the two systems, in my opinion, is the economic freedom. In the United States of America, because of our economic freedom, anybody that has an idea is free to pursue that idea. There are no other countries that have managed to succeed the way the United States has. We can't have a government that tries to control these markets. These markets are based on supply and demand. Welcome to another episode of Fact Check. My name's Caitlin Riley. And I'm Bill Fian. Free enterprise versus socialism. We've been hearing conversations about this, especially in the era of our recent political situation. I know that I have friends who are sending me Facebook messages saying, what's going on, what's happening, and does this matter to me as an individual United States citizen? And Bill, this is a topic that you have researched extensively, not just for this show. This is something that you've been discussing for your entire career as a businessman, as a representative of the La Crosse County Republican Party, Wisconsin's third congressional district GOP. So let's dive into it. Free enterprise and socialism. Why is this so hot right now? Well, because what we're seeing at the national level is a movement towards uh, candidates that call themselves democratic socialists. And probably the most notable of those is Bernie Sanders. Many people feel that Bernie Sanders was cheated out of the nomination when uh, Hillary Clinton became the Democrat nominee four years ago. And once again, in this election, uh, it took uh, a lot of horse trading by the Democrat Party to get people to support Joe Biden and to once again deny Bernie Sanders uh, the nomination to be uh, the Democratic presidential candidate. So not only do we see Bernie Sanders, but we uh, also have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC, as people like to call her. Uh, but she's a, uh, another person who calls herself a democratic socialist. Um, and uh, these people, you know, have some ideas about how they want to transform the United States. That's the word they use. They want to transform the United States. And the way they would do that is by providing free college tuition, uh, Medicare for all. Uh, they want to end the Electoral College. And uh, they also propose a thing called the Green New Deal. And what all of this has in common is it's a much greater role for the federal government in controlling our lives and the United States economy. These are ideas that are socialist ideas when we talk about concentrating this kind of power in the hands of people that are elected in a political party. Boy, this is sounding an awful lot like what happened uh, in the Soviet Union, where uh, there was one party that ruled all, and uh, they created uh, a centrally planned economy where all the decisions about how their economy was going to work uh, were made by the government, uh, by these people who were elected in the Communist Party. And so I think that's uh, caused a, a lot of fear and apprehension amongst people in our country. For me personally, I started my first small business when I was 27 years old. Of course, uh, my wife and I still own two businesses, and uh, I've been involved in a lot of businesses since then. I believe that it's our freedom, it's our free market system where individuals are allowed to choose where they want to spend their money, how they want to invest it that has made our country great. Powerful forces are pulling in different directions right now. And you briefly mentioned this, but the history 
of socialism is something that we can look back in our history books and those who oppose this concept as a form of our economy and government and way of life say it didn't work so it won't work now. Do you want to explain a little bit about that, about the foundation and what we saw then that makes the United States lean towards a more free enterprise country? Well, you know, if we go back to uh, the beginning of the Soviet Union, uh, what we had was we had intellectuals in Europe uh, like Marx who were advocating for socialism or communism. In Tsarist Russia, back at the turn of the 20th century, they had a czar, they had uh, landowners, it was a feudal system, uh, people were called serfs, they had no rights. That was a terrible situation. There were a lot of human rights violations that went on. Uh, people weren't treated very well under that system if you were at the bottom of the system. And then uh, along came the Industrial Revolution, building of factories in the cities. Uh, many of the people that lived in rural areas migrated to these cities for these jobs to have a higher standard of living. And when they got there in Russia, uh, they were met by people from the Bolshevik uh, party who came and told them that, you know, they as workers deserved better and that they should be the ones who were in charge and that the people that were responsible for their, their misery were the people that owned uh, the factories and the czar and the people who ran the country. So that led to a civil war a civil war between uh, the White Army, which represented the status quo, I guess you could say, and, and Tsarists, and the Red Army, which, uh, which is the Bolsheviks and, and the communists. And, of course, we know how that turned out. Socialism got its root because of uh, an oppressive system that existed uh, in Russia back at the turn of the 20th century. And we even saw the impact of what happened in Russia here in the United States because they became reliant on us as a food system when this stopped working. So one of the interesting things about what happens in the Soviet Union is they, they begin to plan everything from the top down. Those plans were called five-year plans. Not only did they plan everything from the top down, but the government owned everything. So... By the early 1930s, 91% of the agricultural land in the Soviet Union was owned by the government. And that created a really bad situation uh, that caused famines. Because once they took the land away from people, they no longer had an incentive to produce. Uh, one of the famous uh, stories was that uh, you had potato farmers in the Soviet Union and they were all paid the same amount of money, regardless of what they produced. So eventually, some people realized, hey, if I don't produce anything, if I don't work at all, I still get paid. And uh, then the people who were still working looked at the people who weren't working and said, well, those people are getting paid the same as I am. I'm not going to work anymore either. And so it led to a situation where the Soviet Union could not even feed itself. And uh, by the 1970s, the Soviet Union began importing hundreds of metric tons of grain from the United States. And the only reason they were able to do this was another thing at that time happened was uh, the Arab oil embargo on the United States. The United States was totally dependent upon Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries for the oil, which runs our whole economy. And so the price of oil skyrocketed, and that provided the cash for the Soviet Union to buy grain from the United States to feed its people. The Soviet system has never worked. For people in my generation, uh, we saw the collapse of the Berlin Wall. 
We thought that was the end of the Soviet system and it was the triumph of capitalism and our, our de democratic system. You know, today we see that uh, once again, uh, there's an interest, especially amongst younger people in this country who don't know that history. Uh, there's this fascination that I think a lot of them learn at their colleges that somehow this system is superior to the system that we have. And what is a fundamental difference between these systems? Because ideally, under socialism and a free enterprise system, you'd have businesses, you'd have people who were successfully employed and fed. So what breaks down the differences between the two? The primary difference between the two systems is that in the Soviet uh, socialist system, we have these centrally planned economies where people at the top of, of the political system make all the decisions about what's going to be produced, what the prices is going to be charged for it. Uh, and in a, in a free market system, a capitalist system, those decisions are made by individuals. That's a big difference. A second uh, difference would be that unlike the Soviet or socialist system where the government owns property, in our system, individuals own property. And the fact that they own that property gives them a powerful incentive to invest back into, say, a company that manufactures something, to find new uh, products to create, uh, new technologies that people would like to have in their life. So the biggest difference between the two systems, in my opinion, is, uh, is the freedom, the economic freedom. This is true in every bureaucracy. It's not only true in socialist systems of government, but it's also true in large corporations here in the United States. Every bureaucracy is by nature risk averse. The people that have reached seats of power in that bureaucracy don't want to lose that seat of power. They're making money, they, they're powerful, they, they don't want to do anything that's going to jeopardize uh, the situation that they have. And so the consequence of that is that new ideas are routinely not pursued. There's a, there's a story that I like to tell about my own personal experience with this. And I worked for an American company that was highly entrepreneurial. I can remember going to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, they asked me if uh, we could produce a vegetable base in a 10-pound pail. We already made the vegetable base. We just didn't have it in a 10-pound pail. And I picked up my phone, called the vice president of marketing, and within a few minutes, he told me, you know, asked me a few questions, and we committed to manufacture that vegetable base in a 10-pound pail. So we innovated. We listened to our customer. We listened to the market. We gave them what they wanted, and it produced a nice piece of new business for our company. A few years later, our company was purchased by a large European company called Unilever. And they had a much different idea about how business was done. And so I could no longer make that phone call to the director of marketing to ask a question like that. There were reams and reams of paperwork that had to be filled out for any new product uh, innovation. And in one in particular, I was calling on hy grocery stores. They wanted a pouch that had salad dressing in it. And then those pouches would match up to the way coleslaw is sold, uh, which is four or five pound pouches. And uh, it was going to be an easy solution for their delis. Well, they guaranteed me a certain amount of purchases the first year. I called some distributors. Everybody loved the idea. There was just one problem. By that time, those types of innovations 
had to wind their way all the way up the bureaucracy here in the U.S. and actually go back to Europe to the corporate headquarters for approval. So needless to say, that product innovation, which once again was just simply a new form of packaging, never happened. And why? Well, I can remember my boss at the time telling me he didn't think there was much chance that it would happen. And it's because he didn't want to take the risk. And people above him didn't want to take the risk. Because one of his questions to me was, well, what if we make all this product and they don't take it? So that's a huge problem from an economic standpoint. When we have large bureaucracies like large corporations, they just aren't willing to take risks and they aren't responsive to the marketplace. And you can actually see the evidence of this in uh, the United States. When we Anybody that follows financial news, you'll see that these large corporations are constantly acquiring smaller companies. And why do they acquire them? Because those smaller companies have innovated, they've taken risk, and they've created a product that becomes you know, a growth product. So these large companies essentially have to, in many cases, go outside uh, their own company and buy other smaller companies to get the innovation that they need to grow. And we can even think of names at the top of our heads today where we've had people who've had ideas, had those big risks that turn out to be big rewards, especially in the COVID era. Well, right. I mean, when we look at uh, COVID pandemic, uh, we see that uh, the two companies that came up with uh, vaccines are from here in the United States. And there's a third one, Johnson & Johnson, that's very, very close to, to achieving that. So it, it shows you how dynamic the U.S. economy is. And, uh, you know, there are no other countries that have managed to succeed in that uh, the way the United States has. And it's because, in general, our, our culture, even our corporate culture, we're still more entrepreneurial. We're still more risk-taking uh, than other places in the world. And we see that, you know, you talked about the vaccines. I'm sure Jeff Bezos is enjoying shipping plenty of Amazon packages of people who aren't going out in these local stores anymore and our computer systems that we're more reliant on than ever. Well, you know, you mentioned Jeff Bezos, and it, it brings up a really important uh, concept. And that is that in the United States of America, because of our economic freedom, anybody that has an idea is free to pursue that idea. And that doesn't happen in other places in the world. And Jeff Bezos started Amazon in his garage, literally in his garage, as did uh, Steve Jobs with Apple Computer and Bill Gates with Microsoft. And Michael Dell started Dell Computer in his college dormitory, as did uh, Zuckerberg. And Facebook was started in a college dormitory. This really illustrates how powerful this principle of economic freedom and the ability to innovate and uh, pursue new ideas is because all of those technologies have changed not only our lives here in the United States, but the lives of people all around the world. Keeping on this innovation train, private property versus government-owned property or things like that, that's something that keeps us moving. And those advancements don't just benefit us as American citizens, but also there's other countries who are watching and saying, we want that, we'll purchase that from you. Absolutely. It's the reason that so many of the large corporations in the United States do so much business around the globe. The last time I saw the numbers, about 40% of all of the business done by the S&P 500 companies is done outside the United States. So yes, our companies, their innovation 
has led to their success globally. And again, that's really good uh, for us here in the United States, and it's really good for people all around the world. So a couple of the innovators that you had mentioned, and we look at today, they can become direct competitors. And we see that a lot of businesses. And how does competition come into play when we're looking at a free enterprise system? Obviously, when we have a socialistic system where the government is controlling everything, uh, there really isn't any competition. And so one of the hallmarks of a free enterprise system, a market-based economy, is competition uh, amongst the different companies. And so here in the United States, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the companies that started in garages and where they are today. One of the great stories about this is when Bill Gates went to... IBM, and he struck a business deal with them. And IBM was the leading computer company in the world at that time. And Bill Gates basically stole their lunch. The, the agreements that he wrote with them resulted within a decade. Microsoft was the leading producer of personal computers in the United States, and IBM was essentially bankrupt. And so all of that happened because the people at IBM couldn't see what the future was going to be. They didn't embrace the innovations that were happening. And Bill Gates, who was a visionary, outcompeted them. That's just a, a real clear example of how somebody who had a better idea and was willing to take a risk on it was able to outcompete this huge. Huge, hugely successful, largest computer company in America, Microsoft completely defeated them within a decade. And what about government regulations on these businesses? Government regulations can influence businesses and their startup, their continuation, and their success. Right. Well, government regulation is a huge factor in all of this. And the reason is, when you have a large corporation, they really don't care a whole lot about the regulations. Would they rather not have regulations? Maybe. But, but the truth is the cost of regulation to a huge multi-billion dollar company is something that's easily absorbed. It's the smaller companies that can't absorb those costs. If you have a small startup company, increased government regulation increases your cost of, of doing business. And that can really be a drag on your ability to grow that business. In fact, I would go so far as to say I think a lot of the large corporations are really happy to see all this regulation because it keeps out competition. And competition is at the heart of our free market system. And really, I, I have concerns about where we are today as a nation. You know, you go to the grocery store and uh, you want to buy ketchup. So how many brands of ketchup can you name? Well, we have Heinz. Mm -hmm. And we have Hunts. And after that, well, you've got store brand, right? Yeah, yeah. But realistically, you know, there might be a couple of regional companies around, but there's not a lot of competition in the ketchup market anymore. And that lack of competition can mean that consumers are paying higher prices. You know, how many, how many kinds of mayonnaise can you name when you go to the grocery store? Well, everybody knows Hellman's mm -hmm. and Kraft. Once we get past that... Yeah, like you said, then it's done to store brands and right. I can't think of them off the top of my head. <laughs> so I think we have a danger here in the U.S. where uh, corporations have uh, become too powerful and our government has allowed 
these corporations to merge and it's reduced competition and that can mean higher prices for consumers and the people that are making these decisions the people that we send to Washington DC and it doesn't matter if they're republicans or democrats those people's reelections are being financed by donations from these large corporations so i think we really need to be concerned about that because those corporations are exerting an awful lot of control over what happens in our economy. And so whether it's more regulations or it's allowing corporations to buy up all the competition, I think we're reaching a place in this country uh, where we should be concerned about how much competition we actually have in our markets. And right now, as we're looking at our business industry, you know, a lot of our businesses, big and small, were hurt by COVID-19, and states are looking at their biennial budgets. And I see some Midwest state budgets that it's saying they're going to bridge the gap by putting higher taxes on businesses. And what role does that play when it comes to the growth of our free enterprise system or the lack thereof? Right. Well, uh, taxation is the biggest uh, problem for growing a business. And so um, when I was with Unilever, I actually took classes on this. And the two common forms of measurement are what we call return on investment. People probably heard of that. Another one is called return on capital. But what it has to do with is the price of money. And so most people, when they go and start a business, they have to go borrow that money. money. They have to pay interest on that money. And it's usually about three years before a business breaks even. So you start this new business, you go and borrow the money, you're paying interest on the money, and you're losing money. So if you're paying 5% interest on the money on a million dollars, that's $50,000 a year. Let's say your business loses another 5% a year. Well, you've lost $300,000 before your business even hits the break-even point. And one of the measures of this is if we look at uh, what we could have done with that money, let's say we owned, we had a million dollars in the bank. Well, we could invest that in U.S. Treasury notes, which are considered a risk-free investment, and we'd be earning about 2%, which is $20,000 a year. So if we take no risk at all, put our million dollars into T-bills, uh, we can earn $20,000 a year on that money and we don't have any possibility of having a bad outcome. But we also know that uh, a great number of businesses that start up in the U.S. don't make it. 20% don't make it through the first year. 50% don't make it through five years. And by the end of 10 years, only 30% of businesses that started up are still in business. So 70% of those people very likely lost their whole million dollars. You know, again, we go to look at our return on investment and we say, well, we've got three years of losing money before we make money. So then, well, we say, okay, uh, maybe we're going to be successful and we make a 10% profit in the fourth year. Well, that 10% profit is $100,000 and a 50% tax on that leaves us 50000 So, you know, do you want to make that million dollar investment suffer losses for three years amounting to $300,000, knowing that in the fourth year you'll probably make 100000 and take home 50000 So it's a big difference between a 50% corporate tax 
and a 25% corporate tax because at a 25% rate, I would have got to keep 75,000. And again, even at that rate, it's gonna be four additional years before I recuperate my initial investment. So new businesses that start up have to have pretty good rates of return to justify making uh, that initial investment. And when you consider the fact that uh, 70% of these businesses aren't gonna survive for a decade, it tells you that uh, the rate that taxes are set at has a big influence on whether companies that exist choose to expand or whether people who are thinking about starting a new business uh, actually go ahead and start that business. So tax rates are probably the biggest determinant of how many new businesses are gonna start up. And as a society, as a country, we really wanna see lots of new businesses starting up we want to see lots of job creation. And the reason we want to see that job creation is because when we create all those jobs, it creates prosperity for everybody. It creates tax revenue for our government. And uh, when there's a very vibrant economy and there's competition for workers in the labor market, this is a concept that President Joe Biden should familiarize his, himself with, he recently is uh, putting forward a $15 federal minimum wage. Well, you know, there's just a lot of companies uh, that a $15 wage would really impact their ability to be profitable. Uh, so they're probably going to end up eliminating jobs. We can't have a government that tries to control these markets. These markets are based on supply and demand. So if there are more workers out there than there are jobs, the jobs pay less. If there's more jobs out there than there are workers, and there's competition for the workers, then we see rising wages. And all we have to do is look back at the eight years that Barack Obama was president, we see almost no wage growth in the United States. Look at the four years that Donald Trump was president, we see the best wage growth and lowest unemployment rates in history. So tax rates make a huge difference in terms of what the opportunities are and what the prosperity is for Americans. And so is the United States a purely capitalist economy, or do we already see these different economic systems laying their groundwork in our country? That's an excellent question. The truth is that, yes, the United States is no longer a purely capitalist society. After the Great Depression, we passed a program called Social Security, and Social Security is based on the payroll taxes that all Americans pay, and it ensures that people who are blind or deaf or disabled or people that are uh, older who can't work to support themselves anymore uh, are provided for. And so we've already taken a step in the United States to providing that social safety net. Uh, another program uh, that's like that is Medicare, where people pay into the system their entire lives, and uh, when they become 65 years of age, uh, they're eligible for support from the federal government to help with their health care costs. So we're not a purely capitalist system today. Um, the real question in this is how much taxation is the right level of taxation? Uh, Democrats are talking about all these new federal programs for free college tuition, Medicare for all, uh, the Green New Deal, and where will the money come from to pay for those things? I think the answer is that it's got to be much higher taxes on businesses and individuals and the result of that is going to be that uh, we have less job creation, uh, we have a less vibrant economy, we'll have less tax revenue, 
but a, a much bigger role for the federal government, uh, much more control by the people that are elected at the top of the pyramid, a lot less control for individuals. So we're not a purely capitalistic system anymore. And I would say that the great majority of Americans are okay with that. And now going forward, you know, as you said, we have a new administration and we're seeing these different ideas of what an economy should look like trickle down. What do you see for the future, whether it's for the next four years or in the next year, and what can the average American citizen do about it? Taxes are really math. What, what it really gets down to is it's not about what is a fair tax policy. It's about what is the right tax policy. What level of taxation creates the optimal level of economic growth, job creation, and, you know, we need tax revenue to, to run our government. So it's really about creating tax policies that maximize all of those things. And we can't just sit there and say, well, because somebody makes more money, they should pay more in taxes. That's just a really foolish way to think about tax policy. We should be looking at this and we should be saying, what level of taxation creates the greatest level of economic prosperity for all Americans? And in my book, that means that the tax levels that we have right now, uh, we've just come across four of the best years in United States history. All-time highs in the stock market, historical lows in unemployment across all groups in America, and uh, rising wages, wages that hadn't risen for almost a decade uh, were rising at historical rates. And so, unfortunately, it seems like the people on the other side of the political spectrum, for me, don't understand all that. Uh, passing a $15 minimum wage is going to eliminate millions of jobs. And uh, I think we're in for a tough road here because these folks seem to think that having the government run our economy and make all the decisions in our lives is the way to go. And I will just say this, I think it's destined for failure. And what can the average American do? Get involved. Go, go get involved in your local party. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, go get involved. And uh, try and make a change from within that. And uh, heck, if you don't even have to join a political party, but, but go and uh, seek an office in your county board or your town government or your school board, uh, that's the part of government that impacts our lives the most. So get involved is, is my advice to people who are frustrated by changes that are happening today. I think those are all the questions that I have for you as we're wrapping up another episode of Fact Check. But Bill, is there anything else you want to add? Anything else you want people to know? I think we're, we're at an important point in our country's history, and uh, there are a lot of disturbing things that are happening right now with censorship of conservatives in the media. And a lot of people are saying, well, geez, why should I even vote? Why should, why should I try? And the answer is uh, we, we can't give up. I will never stop fighting for my conservative values, and I hope you people will also continue to fight for our freedoms and those values that have made our country great. Thank you, Bill, for another episode of Fact Check, taking a deeper look at our free enterprise system versus socialism. And as we were concluding, Bill did mention the importance of being involved in local government. And we go deeper into that conversation in episode four. If you missed that, please feel free to go back and take a listen there. And for Fact Check, I'm Caitlin Riley. And I'm Bill Fian.